You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. If you're able to remain standing, turn with me to Genesis chapter 35. We'll just be reading the first 15 verses of this chapter. This is God's word to us this morning. And God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise, verse three, and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to God, to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So verse four, they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that there that were in their ears Jacob hid them under the tabernacle tree that was in that was near Shechem verse 5 and they journeyed and as they journeyed a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob and Jacob came to Luz that is Bethel which is in the land of Canaan he and all the people who were with him And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel. Because God had revealed, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Elon Bakuth. Verse 9, God appeared to Jacob again. When he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in that place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. And this is God's holy word this morning. Please be seated. We are continuing in our study of the book of Genesis this morning, and we come to chapter 35 of this great history of redemption. Last week, as you'll remember, we made our way through the deep darkness that was chapter 34. We were met with unrestrained sin in Canaan. It was hard to read. It was hard to preach. 
It was hard, I would imagine, for many of you to listen, both on the part of the Canaanites and on the part of the Israelites, there was unrestrained sin. No one came out of chapter 34 looking good. Of course, Shechem's abuse of Dinah and Hamor's reprehensible defense of his son. Jacob's remarkable passivity and indifference to the horrors of what took place. And of course, the sinful deceit and the revenge of Jacob's sons. Chapter 34 was quite the display of human depravity. We don't know how much time passes between chapters 34 and 35. I wish we knew. Was it a day? Was it a week? Perhaps it was a few months. It's hard to say. Whatever the amount of time, surely the adrenaline eventually wore off. And the family, the the Israelites were left to reflect on what happened in that Canaanite city. You know that feeling when the adrenaline wears off and you can begin to think logically and rationally about what happened. Dinah's defilement must have set in. The blood stains from the genocidal rage still remained on the clothes of Simeon and Levi. And as a consequence of the brothers' actions, the prospect of war with the surrounding nations seemed imminent. The days and weeks that followed all that happened in Shechem must have been terrifying. It must have been filled with unrelenting fear and shame. And I wonder if you've ever felt that way in your own life. I wonder if you've ever done something so disgraceful, something so wrong, that all you could do is feel the shame of your behavior and brace for the consequences that were coming. This was Israel at the end of chapter 34. Fear had gripped their hearts and minds and shame was their food. What have we done? And yet, a beam of light pierces the darkness that covered Canaan. I praise God that chapter 34 is not the only chapter in the Bible. A beam of light pierces the darkness that covered Canaan. God is still there. He has not abandoned his promises and therefore he has not abandoned his people despite their weakness, despite their rebellion. Where there was no divine speech and no mention of God at all in chapter 34, In chapter 35, we find the exact opposite. Chapter 35 is full of divine speech. And God is mentioned 11 times in just 15 verses. Where there was no mention of God in 34, 
God is all over the place in chapter 35. In fact, God's most famous name, El Shaddai, God Almighty is mentioned here in chapter 35. So then if the absence of God in chapter 34 brings about darkness and chaos, then the presence of God in chapter 35 brings about light and life. Grace will be our theme in the text this morning. Grace. Grace is that unearned gift of God's affection for his covenant people. Grace is unearned, unmerited affection from God for his covenant people. And there are three miracles of God's grace that will form our sermon outline this morning. The first is the grace of repentance. It is a miracle, as we'll discover. Repentance is a miracle, and it is a gift of God's grace. And that is the first illustration or example of God's grace this morning, the grace of repentance. The second is the grace of protection. And the third is the grace of restoration. The grace of repentance, the grace of protection, and the grace of restoration. Well, first, the grace of repentance. Look at verse 1 again of chapter 35. God said to Jacob, Arise, stand up. Go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. In short, verse 1 is a call to repent. We've talked about this at length from this pulpit. Repentance is not just the feelings of shame or guilt that you get when you do something wrong. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of attitude that, that leads to a change of direction. You change your mind about what you're doing and you change your whole attitude in life about what you're doing and your direction follows. Verse 1 of chapter 35 is a call to Jacob and all of Israel to repent. But notice with me who initiates the repentance that is desperately needed. Jacob doesn't wake up and go, I, I need to repent. I've been doing really, really bad things in Shechem. I've been passive as a father. I've been passive as a leader. My sons have committed genocide. My daughter has been defiled. We need to repent. No, notice who initiates the repentance. It's God. God said to Jacob, God breaks in. So the very first thing I want us to understand is that true repentance, don't tune out. True repentance is always initiated by God himself. True repentance is a work of the Holy Spirit to convict his people of sin and a call to turn from that rebellion and return to the Lord. That is a work of the Holy Spirit and it is a miracle. Human flesh cannot bring about true repentance. 
We can work up remorse. We can work up shame, even penance. I need to pay for what I've done. And that is not repentance. That is a religious form of bondage. True repentance is always brought about by the Holy Spirit and it affects a turn from and a turn to, from the wickedness and the rebellion to the Lord. At its very core, repentance is a gift from God. I loathe entirely those signs outside of baseball fields with flames going and to repent or burn as if repentance is a curse word. And we get this thought, this feeling, this emotion that comes over us when we see repent as if it's a bad thing. Repentance is one of the greatest gifts of God. And it is a gift. It's a gift. The apostle Paul in second Timothy chapter two, verse 25 is instructing a young pastor. And he's, he's saying to this young pastor, don't, don't correct your, or correct your opponents with gentleness because God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. God grants repentance. Repentance is not earned. It is not worked for. It is a gift of God. And here in our text, God yet again grants repentance to Jacob. This is not the first time that God has granted repentance to our patriarch in progress. He does it again. And notice, not only that God initiates and God grants repentance, but now he gives direction what to do in repentance. Notice where God wants Jacob to go. Verse 1 again, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Now remember Jacob's state of mind at the end of chapter 34. Jacob is not in a good place at the end of 34. He's terrified. He's terrified that the nations surrounding Shechem are now going to rise up against Israel because of the bloodshed brought about by his sons. Jacob is terrified. He's paralyzed with fear. And so God now breaks in and he commands Jacob to go to the place, Bethel, where he felt God's gracious protection last time he was gripped with fear. Remember that? Remember last time Jacob was gripped with fear? He was so certain that Esau was going to catch up with him and rip his head off. He was so certain that as a way to to avenge himself, Esau was going to come and catch up with Jacob and kill him and his entire family. And so God says, go to Bethel. Let me remind you that I am the God who is with you. I am the God who protects you. I am the God who is for you. And now here again in chapter 35, where does God tell Jacob to go? Go to the last place you were fearful. And remember again how I thwarted Esau's hatred. Not only that, not only did Esau not take you and rip your head off, but you were reconciled with your brother. God did an unimaginable thing by reconnecting two brothers that were at war with each other. And so God says, in your repentance... 
I want you to go to the place that I showed up last time. And I proved to you there that I was for you, that I will protect you. Remember, Jacob, that I am with you. So God initiates the repentance that is needed. And then he gives direction on where to go and what to do. Build an altar. Build a a memorial of remembrance that I am the God who is with you always. Notice now the effect of genuine repentance. What is a fruit of genuine repentance? If it's not just feeling bad, if it's not just remorse, but it's God wrought, God does it, it ought to bear fruit, a certain kind of fruit. And so notice now the effect of genuine repentance. Look at verse 2 and following. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Verse three, then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So verse four, they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. Remember, after Simeon and Levi slaughtered all the males of the city, the Israelites came in after them and plundered everything. They took the jewelry off their bodies. They went into the household and they took the possessions. They took the household gods. They plundered the entire city and they acquired all of this wealth. They took everything. Again, including the pagan gods that were of great value. And so, in response to God's call to return to Bethel, Jacob knew what needed to happen for himself and his people. They needed to purge themselves of everything they took from the Canaanites. Not only were these items a reminder of shame and rebellion, but they also represented trust in something other than the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were to purge themselves. And notice that they literally buried them in the past. They buried them under the terebinth tree. As one author remarks, he says, quote, the hiding of the foreign gods and the rings under the oak of Shechem was a symbolic burial of the past, leaving behind the family's defilement. So this, beloved, as I said, is another evidence of genuine repentance. What is that? that you cast off your rebellion and you don't take it with you into the future. You bury it in the past where it belongs. Too many of us try to manage our sin and our chaos when God has called us to bury it. 
We tend to categorize our sin, organize our sin, try to tame our sin, try to manage it. When God calls us to leave it behind and bury it, not to dig it up again, but to leave it in Shechem, leave it behind. And this, of course, is not a one-time event. If you've been walking with Jesus for any amount of time, you know that repentance is not a one-time thing, but it's an ongoing process. And if this morning you find yourself having done that, you're not perfect. We know that. There are more things to repent of. There are more sins that come before the Lord. But if you, if you find yourself right now having re- repented, buried something in the past because God has initiated this change, then this is cause of, for great joy. This is cause for great joy because God has brought about a miracle in your heart. If you sit here today and you are not doing the same things that you were two years ago or one year ago or three years ago, you've buried in the past, your, your heart ought to be leaping with joy because God's smile is upon you. And so Jacob... And his sons were granted the grace of repentance and they're on their way to Bethel. They've purged themselves of all that they have acquired in Shechem. They buried in the past and they're moving toward God. I feel the need to say this again. This is exactly the reason it's a miracle. This is, this is exactly what your flesh and Satan is pulling against. Because Satan in your flesh will use shame to keep you from God. And will like to turn repentance into a dirty word, into a, into a bad word. Oh, repentance is that thing where you just wallow and you feel really low. When repentance is supposed to be the exact opposite. It's supposed to be the pathway to refreshing joy. And so Satan would love to keep you from repentance at all costs. But the Bible calls us, God calls us to repent so that times of refreshing may come. And so we have the grace of repentance. And now they encounter the grace of protection. Look at verse 5. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them. So that they, that is the cities, did not pursue the sons of Jacob. This brings up another really important principle as it relates to repentance. And that is this. Repentance is never convenient and it's always costly. And risky. Repentance is never convenient and it's always costly and risky. The Israelites just buried a fortune of gold and silver back in Shechem. And now they are passing through extremely dangerous territory on their way to obedience. But then we learn something profound about God. And that is this God grants what he commands. He commanded that Jacob and the family build an altar at Bethel. And so God grants safe passage to Bethel 
so that Jacob and the family can be obedient to the command. Repentance is not convenient. If you're waiting for convenience, like, you know, this human thing where it's like, when, when I turn 30, then I'll put away the things that I do. You know that that changes to 40 when you hit 30. When, when I get married, then, then I'll start looking at things online that I ought not to be looking at online. When, when you're just waiting for convenience, for repentance to set in, brother and sister, let me just tell you, it's never convenient to repent, but it's always worth it. Always worth it. And here, on the way to obedience, they pass through this surrounding cities that want to slay the children of Israel because they had just committed genocide in Shechem. And so what does God do? God puts terror in the heart of those threatening cities so that his people can repent. Had not God brought terror on the cities around them, they would not have made it to Bethel. And so God grants what he commands. A terror from God fell upon the cities. On this point, listen to John Calvin. He says this, quote, From this, we learn that the hearts of men are in the hands of God. God can strengthen those who in themselves are weak and he can also soften the hard hearted when he pleases. So whenever we see the wicked bent on our destruction so that our hearts will not fail us, let us remember this terror of God by which the rage, however furious of the whole world may be easily subdued. Or as David writes in Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me for your rod and your staff. They comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my what enemies. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Beloved, the only thing more terrifying than someone out for your harm is a God who is out for your protection. The only thing more terrifying than someone out for your harm is a God who is out for your protection. He terrified Israel's enemies. And they arrive safely in Bethel. Look at verse 6 and following. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. He and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel. Because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. Verse 8. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died. And she was buried under a an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Elon Bakhuth. So not only did they arrive safely in Bethel, 
But with the death of Deborah, that is Jacob's mother's nurse, Moses records the turning of a generational page. That's the reason why this death is recorded. It is a turning of a generational page. Deborah lived 180 years and she died in Bethel. That is to say God has been faithful to Rebecca and Isaac's generation and he will be faithful to the next. And so God has granted the grace of repentance and he has granted now the grace of protection. And now our third movement in the text, God will grant the grace of restoration. The grace of restoration. Look at verse 9 and following. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. Now, if you've been with us in this series through Genesis for really any amount of time, this probably feels like deja vu. We've heard this from God before. God has already renamed Jacob. Remember, after God dislocated Jacob's hip back in chapter 32, Jacob stood there weakened by God's strength before God, and God says, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. God has already renamed Jacob. But here in chapter 35, God repeats himself, and he reaffirms the new name, and the question is why? Why does God reaffirm the new name for Jacob? Because listen, in Shechem, Jacob forgot who he was. In Shechem, Jacob forgot who he was. And so God brings Jacob out of Shechem and into Bethel, the house of God, to remind him of who he is. I forget who said this, but sin or rebellion at its core is spiritual amnesia. In those moments when you lay hold of the things that you know you ought not to lay hold of, you are having temporary spiritual amnesia. You are forgetting who you are. Jacob forgot who he was in Shechem. And so God takes Jacob out of Shechem and he brings him back to a familiar place, the house of God at Bethel, to remind Jacob of who he is. You are not Jacob, you are Israel. Theologian Henry Nouwen famously penned this. I think it is in The Living Reminder, his book called The Living Reminder. It says this, quote, One of the tragedies, one of the greatest tragedies of our Christian life is that we keep Forgetting who we are. We keep forgetting who we are. So then central to the grace of repentance is the grace of remembrance. This is why we come on the first day of the week all of the time here. In part for the grace of remembrance. This is called the table of remembrance. 
where we remember the body of Christ broken and the blood of Christ shed for you. And we come with trembling hands again and we remember that God is for us. We remember our name. We were not this anymore. We are not this anymore. We are this. Oh yeah, God, I'm so sorry. I forgot who I was. I repent. And so God is saying to Jacob, Jacob, you forgot who you were. You forgot that you are mine, that you are Israel, that you are God's chosen people, that you are not your own and that you are not alone. And now I will remind you in Bethel of who you are. You are Israel. And so after Jacob's rebellion in Shechem, God restores Jacob by reminding him of who he is. But listen, God doesn't only remind Jacob of who Jacob is, but God also reminds Jacob of who God is. Notice what God says in verse 11. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Jacob, I am El Shaddai. Meaning I am the sovereign God of the entire universe. Therefore, you don't need to fear the Canaanite nations when the God of all creation is for you. You are Israel and I'm God Almighty. Yes, beloved, it is vital that we remember who we are in Christ, but we can only remember who we are in light of who God is. This is how we remind ourselves of who we are by reminding ourselves of who God is. Satan's lie in Genesis 3 was that you could be like God. You can have wisdom and you can have power and you can have joy and you can have pleasure apart from God. That's Satan's lie then and that's Satan's lie now. To reverse that is a sight of God that says, no, 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 I'm not God. I cannot be like God. I cannot have wisdom and power and strength and pleasure and joy apart from God. In fact, I need God. So for for us to properly understand who we are, we have to have proper sight on who God is. And look at verse 13 to the end. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. Notice that phrase, went up from him. If God went up, Logically concludes that God went down. He went down to Jacob. He went down to Bethel. He went down to the Israelites. He condescended himself. He brought himself near. This is what God does. He comes near. So God went up from him in that place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him. A pillar of stone. And he poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of that place where God had spoken with him, Bethel, the house of God. So unrelenting fear and shame after all that happened in Shechem, 
is now met with unrelenting grace, the grace of repentance, and the grace of restoration. The question as we close is, what about you this morning? What about you this morning? The very good news for all of us who are discovering Genesis 35, the very good news is that the same God who initiated and granted repentance to Jacob and Israel is still initiating and granting repentance today. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God does not change. He is the God who grants repentance. He's the God who initiates. And so my question for you this morning is, what have you acquired? What have you acquired in your rebellion? What have you acquired that needs to be buried in the past? What sort of patterns of behavior or false comforts need to be left behind? What sort of sin patterns do you find yourself managing and trying to put in nice, neat little boxes? And what is God, the Holy Spirit right now, trying to rip the the lid off of those boxes right now and say, no, 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 we don't need to organize this. We need to bury it. What is that? I don't know what that looked like at the terebinth tree at Shechem when they're burying the household gods and all that they had acquired. I don't know what that looked like. I don't know how big a hole that was. But I'm sure it wasn't one person out there with a shovel digging a hole. It was all the sons and daughters of Jacob digging together. Together, we are going to leave this in the past. Together, we are going to see the dirt hit the top of those gold rings. I say all of that because maybe you need help digging the hole. Maybe you don't know how to leave it in the past. I know there have been seasons in my life where I've wanted to repent and leave it, but I just don't know how. It's too dangerous. There's too much of my life that's attached to this sin. How do I do it? Well, it doesn't have to be me. It doesn't have to be one of the pastors, but there's a whole church here that would love to take out a shovel with you and dig that hole with you and build a nice little memorial of goodbye and moving forward. But what is that? What is that in your life? What have you acquired that needs to be buried in the past? God's word calls us to repent so that times of refreshing may come. This is the key. The world says, do whatever you want and that will lead to freedom. Do you. And that will lead to freedom. The Bible says, if you do you and whatever you want, that will lead to bondage. But the Bible says the reverse. If you yoke yourself, if you connect yourself to God, that will lead to freedom. If you purge yourself, if you repent of these things, times of refreshing may come. There is a kind of crazy freedom that comes in repentance. 
to move from Shechem, the house of shame, to the house of God at Bethel. Do you want that? If you do, you're a walking miracle. And it's his goodness that leads us to repentance, isn't it? He's so good. He's so near. And you might say again this morning, but repentance is too costly. It's too costly. This move is too scary. And God's word to you this morning is this. God will grant what he commands. He will keep you safe on your path toward obedience. He will keep you safe. God Almighty is with you. El Shaddai is with you. And he's not only with you, but he's for you. And he can terrorize your enemies. Finally, as we close, remember what Jacob told his people to do after, or rather before they left to Bethel. Remember? It's kind of a weird thing. Right? Get rid of all of the, the stuff, but then he says, change your clothes. Did you catch that? Look at verse 2 again. And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Change your garments. Well, certainly Simeon and Levi need to change their garments. They're bloodstained from all of the brutal bloodshed that they did in Shechem. But this is to all of them. Change your garments. Well, this was a Jewish custom which finds its origin in the changed garments of Adam and Eve. Remember when God changed their garments. Remember what they had covered themselves with. They covered their shame with fig leaves. They were ashamed at what they had done. They hid themselves and they covered their nakedness with fig leaves. But then God initiates, God pursues, God calls, and he brings what? New garments. A new covering. He sacrifices animals and he uses the garments of those animals, the skins of those animals to be a garment for his people. And so to reflect the inner change that had taken place in repentance, the Jews would change their clothes. These new clothes represent the new change in my heart. The new clothes are not going to change your heart (laughs) any more than baptism will make you a Christian. But it is an external evidence of what had taken place inside. And so the change of clothes would communicate the change in their hearts. Both now, listen, both the garments given by God in the garden as well as the custom that followed existed to point to final garments, eternal garments, the garments of Christ, which would forever remove the stains from Shechem. As Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 61 verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. And so though Paul picks up on this in the new Testament in, in Romans chapter 13, verse 14, Paul says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
That's garment language. Like a robe, you put on Jesus Christ and take no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Again, in Galatians 3, 27 and 28, Paul says, for as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ as a new garment, a garment that not only covers the shame of Shechem, but removes the shame of Shechem forever. And so may, may the Lord keep granting his people the grace of repentance. May we see it as a miracle of his divine favor upon his people. And may we find deep joy and refreshment as we walk in this great gift together. If you need help digging the hole, reach out for prayer. Let's do it together. Amen.